This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First and Last by Hilaire Belloc. Chapter 34 The Game of Cards. A youth of no more than twenty-three years entered a first-class carriage at the famous station of Swindon in the country of Wiltshire, proposing to travel to the outermost parts of the West and to enjoy a comfortable loneliness while he ruminated upon all things human and divine, when he was sufficiently annoyed to discover that in the furthest corner of the carriage was sitting an old gentleman of benevolent appearance, or at any rate a gentleman of benevolent appearance, who appeared in his youthful eyes to be old. For though the old gentleman was, as a fact, but sixty, yet his virile beard had long gone white, and the fringes of his hair attaching to his ostrich egg of a head confirmed his venerable appearance. When the train had started, the young man proceeded, in no very good temper and with great solemnity, to fill a pipe. He turned to his senior, who was watching him in a very paternal and happy manner, and said formally, I hope you do not mind my smoking, sir. Not at all, said the old boy. It's a habit I have long grown accustomed to in others. The young man bowed in a somewhat absurd fashion, and felt for his matches. He discovered to his no small mortification that he had none. He was so used to his pipe after a meal that he really could not forgo it. He came off his perch by at least three steps, and asked the old man very gently whether he had any matches. The older man produced a box, and at the same time brought out with it a little notebook and a playing card, which happened to be in his pocket. The young man took the matches and lit his pipe, surveying the old man the while with a more complacent eye. "'It is very kind of you, sir,' he said, a little less stiffly, and handed back the matches, wrapping his rug round his legs, sat down in his place, and, knowing that one should prolong the conversation for a moment or two, after a favour, said, I see that you play cards. I do, said the old man simply. Would you like a game? I don't mind, said the young man, who had always heard that it was unmanly and ridiculous to refuse a game of cards in a railway carriage. The elder man laughed merrily in his strong beard as he saw his junior begin to spread somewhat awkwardly a copy of a newspaper upon his knees. I'll show you a trick worth two of that, he said, and taking one of the first-class cushions, which alone of railway cushions are movable from its place, he came over to the corner opposite the young man and made a table of the cushion between them. Now, said he genially, what's it to be? Well, said the young man, like one who expounds new mysteries, do you know Piquet? Oh, yes, said his companion, with another happy little laugh of contentment with the world. I'll take you on. What shall it be? Pennies, if you like, said the young man nonchalantly. Very well. And double for the Rubicon? How do you mean, said the young man, puzzled. You will see, said the old man, and they began to play. The game was singularly absorbing. At first the young man won a few pounds. Then he lost rather heavily. Then he won again, but not quite enough to recoup. Then in the fourth game he won so that he was a little ahead, and meanwhile the old man chattered merrily during the discarding and the shuffling, during the shuffling especially. 
He looked out towards the downs with something of a sigh at one moment, and said, It's a happy world. Yes, answered the younger man, with the proper lugubriousness of youth, but it all comes to an end. It isn't coming to an end, said the older man, declaring a point of six. That's not the tragedy. It's the little bits coming to an end, meanwhile, before the whole comes to an end. That's the tragedy. But he added with another of his jolly laughs, We must play. Piquet takes up all one's grey matter. They played, and the young man lost again, but by a very narrow margin. It was quite an absorbing game. As they shuffled again, the young man said, What did you mean by the little bit stopping, or whatever it was? Oh, said the old man, as though he couldn't remember, and then he added, Oh, yes, I mean, you'll find as you grow older people die, and affections change, and though it seems silly to mention it in a company with higher things, there's what Shelley called the contagion of the world's slow stain. Then their conversation was interrupted by the ardor of the game. But as they played, the young man was ruminating, and he had come to the conclusion that his senior was imperfectly educated, and was probably of the middle classes, whereas he himself was destined to be a naval architect, and with that object had recently left the university for an office in the city. The young man thought that a man properly educated would never quote a tag. He was wrong there. As he had allowed his thoughts to wander somewhat, the young man lost that game rather heavily, and at the end of it he was altogether about ten shillings to the bad. It was his turn to shuffle. The older man was at leisure to speak, and did so rather dreamily as he gazed at the landscape again. Things change, you know, he said, and there is the contagion of the world's slow stain. One gets preoccupied, especially about money. When men marry, they get very much preoccupied upon that point. It's bad for them, but it can't be helped. You cut, said the young man. His elder cut, and they played again. This time, as they played their game, the old man broke his rule of silence and continued his observations interruptedly. Four kings, he said. It isn't that a man gets to think money all important. It is that he has to think of it all the time. No, three queens are no good. I said four kings. Four knaves. The little losses of money don't affect one, but perpetual trouble about it does. And closing up the majority of tricks which he had just gained, many a man goes on making more year after year and yet feels himself in peril. And the last trick... He took up the cards to shuffle them. Towards the very end of life, he continued, it gets less, I suppose, but you'll feel the burden of it. He put the pack over for the younger man to cut. When that was done, he dealt them out slowly. As he dealt, he said, one feels the loss of little material things, objects to which one was attached, a walking stick or a ring, or a watch which one has carried for years. Your declare. The young man declared, and that game was played in silence. I regret to say that the young man was rubiconed, and was thirty shillings in the elder's debt. We'll stop if you like, said the elder man kindly. Oh, no, said the youth with nonchalance. I'll pay you now if you like. Not at all. I didn't mean that, said the older man with a sudden prick of honor. Oh, but I will, and we'll start fair again, said the young man. Whereupon he handed over his combined losses in gold. The older man gave him change, they shuffled again, and they went on with their play. 
After all, said the older man, musing as he confessed to a point of no more than five, it's all in the day's work. It's just the day's work, he repeated with a saddened look in his eyes. It's a game that one plays like this game, and then when it's over, it's over. It's the little losses that count. That game again was unfortunate for the young man, and he had to shell out fifteen and six. But the brakes were applied. Bristol was reached. The train came to a standstill, and the young man looked up a little confused and hurried, said, Hello, Bristol. I get out here. So do I, said the older man. They both stood up together, and the jolt of the train as it stopped dead threw them into each other's arms. I am really very sorry, said the youth. It's my fault, said the old chap, like a good fellow. I ought to have caught hold. You'll get out, and I'll hand you your bag. It's very kind of you, said the young man. He was really flattered by so much attention, but he knew himself what a good companion he was, and he could understand it. Besides which, they had made friends during that little journey. He always liked a man to whom he had lost some money in an honest game. There was a heavy crowd upon the platform, and two men barging up out of it saluted the old man boisterously by the name of Jack. He twinkled at them with his eyes as he began moving the luggage about, and stood for a moment in the doorway with his own bag in his right hand and the young man's bag in his left. The young man so saw it for an instant, a fine upstanding figure. He saw his bag handed by some mistake to the second of the old man's friends. A porter came by at the moment, pushing through the crowd with a trolley. An old lady made a scene. The porter apologized. The crowd took sides. For some the porter, for some the old lady. The young man, with deference at his age, politely asked several people to make way. But when he had emerged from the struggle, his companion, his companion's friends, and his own bag could not be found, or at any rate he could not make out where they were in the great mass that pushed and surged upon the platform. He made himself a little conspicuous by asking too many questions, and by losing his temper twice with people who had done him no harm when, just as his excitement was growing more than querulous, a very heavy, stupid-looking man in regulation boots tapped him on the shoulder and said, Follow me. He was prepared with an oath by way of reply, but another gentleman of equal weight, wearing boots of the same pattern, linked his arm in his, and between them they marched him away to a little private closet opening out of the station-master's room. Now, sir, he said, who had first tapped him on the shoulder, be good enough to explain your movements. I don't know what you mean, said the young man. You were in the company, said the older man severely, of an old man, bald with a white beard and a blue sailor suit. He had come from London. You joined him at Swindon. We have evidence that he was to be met at this station, and it will be to your advantage if you make a clean breast of it. The young man was violent, and he was borne away. But he had friends at Bristol. He gave his references, and he was released. To this day he believes that he suffered not from folly, but from injustice. He did not see his bag again, but after all it contained no more than his evening clothes, for which he had paid, or rather owed, six guineas, four shirts and as many collars, and dress ties, a silver-mounted set of brushes and combs, and useless cut-glass bottles a patented razor, a stick of shaving soap, and two very, very confidential letters which he treasured. His watch, of course, was gone, but not, I am glad to say, his chain, which hung dangling, 
though in his flurry he had not noticed it. It made him look a trifle ridiculous. As he wore no tie-pin, he had not lost that, and beyond his temper he had indeed lost nothing further save possibly a textbook upon thermodynamics. This book, he thought, he remembered having put into the bag, and if he had, it belonged to his library, but he could not quite remember this point, and when the library claimed it, he stoutly disputed their claim. In this dispute he was successful, but it was the only profit he made out of that journey, unless we are to count his experience, and experience, as all the world knows, is a thing that men must buy. The end of chapter 34